We see people in San Francisco with open wounds, open sores, they're dying of drug overdoses. The popular idea that we should just simply help people to remain heavily addicted, but in a slightly safer way, I find it just offensive and quite cynical. Many people need the intervention. Today I sit down with Michael Schellenberger, author of the books San Francisco and Apocalypse Never. We're literally paying people in the form of cash welfare, housing, and other services to live in tents, on the street, use hard drugs, defecate publicly, and commit crimes. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kalik. Michael Schellenberger, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me, Yanis. We're super happy to be here. I have to say this before we start. You know, Apocalypse Never, your previous book, which you wrote, what, a year ago? It's a book that's very, very important to me and trying to understand the realities around climate change, just trying to find kind of a path through all this weaponized information. So I want to, you know, give you that shout out for that book. Of course, today we're going to talk about San Francisco. This is something you've been working on for a long time, the issue of mental health and homelessness and the intersection of this. And so, well, give, give us a framework. What is really happening out there? Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I've been working on the environment for the last 20 years, pretty heavily focused on the environment. But in the late 1990s, I did work on uh, decriminalization of drugs, harm reduction, housing first. I did work for a number of organizations supported by George Soros, including his main foundation, Open Society Institute. And when I stopped doing that work in around 2000, my understanding was that we were advocating drug treatment, drug rehabilitation as an alternative to prison, you know, around 2017, when drug overdose deaths reached 73,000 a year, I remember thinking, you know, up from 17,000 in the year 2000, I remember thinking something has gone horribly wrong. I started to look more at the issue. Last year, we had 93,000 deaths from drug, from illicit drugs, uh, overdoses and poisonings. I knew this was something I needed to come back to. Apocalypse Never, my book on the environment, is a reflection on what I had been wrong about <laughs> and why I changed my mind about some questions. I wanted to do the same thing for San Francisco. First of all, it's remarkable that you don't hear a lot about people changing their mind it's almost, or, or, or being wrong or having made mistakes these days. right? It's almost like you, people just kind of dig in. So one of the things that comes through in San Francisco is that a homelessness problem, so to say, the homelessness issue, it's a misnomer. It's not a homelessness issue. It is a drug abuse issue. But somehow these things are conflated, right? That's right. I mean, the word homeless is a propaganda word. It was, it's been around for decades, but it was really used in the 1980s by progressive activists to demand more subsidized housing. And they used people who were on the street suffering from drug addiction or untreated mental illness as reasons for more housing. And part of the reason that you would use the word homeless is it suggests that the underlying problem is lack of housing, expensive rents, or poverty. And that's not the case. And you know, it was interesting. I try to look back on how I thought about these questions. There was always a lot of political activity around homelessness in San Francisco when I was there in the 1990s, but it, I was never fully on board with a lot of it because it seemed like it was basically a defense of people 
being addicted to hard drugs and living on the street and engaging in criminal activities, and it never seemed right, either for the people that were engaged in those activities or for the other residents of the city. At various moments, um, you know, people have, this is not, by the way, my interpretation of that word. I mean, the word homeless, the advocates who, who used the word homelessness explicitly said that they were using that word. The problem is, it combines, what they're doing is they're combining groups of people that should not be combined. So the two groups that are in the biggest trouble that are living on the street are people suffering from untreated mental illness and people suffering from drug addiction. Sometimes they're the same people, sometimes they're different people. There's people with schizophrenia that live on the street, but there's also just people that got addicted to heroin or meth that have become disaffiliated, alienated from friends and family in part because they've stolen money from them or borrowed money from them and not paid it back and basically been kicked out of their homes. To mix up those people with, say, the mother escaping an abusive husband is just irresponsible. There's people that do suffer hard times and they need some financial help. We do a pretty good job of helping those people. They don't need the same thing that people that are addicted to heroin and meth need. Well, and so the, it seems like there's a kind of ideological determination and this you know you expound on this book I thought this was really fascinating because I hadn't thought of it that way that someone in this sort of situation cannot be held accountable for their situation because it's seen as an illness so to speak but the only way paradoxically the only way they're gonna get out of it is to take some responsibility for their situation or let someone else take responsibility so that's, that's just a fascinating ju juxtaposition to me yeah, that's right. And to some extent, you know, San Francisco is famous for having treated people with HIV-AIDS um, at a time when other people were not treating them. So it really comes out of a tra tradition of compassion. I mean, the name of San Francisco is named after St. Francis, who was a saint to the poor and the sick. And so leading with compassion is a big part of our identity. The problem is, as most people have some awareness of, people that are addicted to hard drugs or even to alcohol um, and marijuana, uh, which are not perceived as being as, as hard of drugs, but people that are suffering from addiction often do need an intervention. This has been well understood for 150 years of opioid abuse. We've no, we have a television, there's a television show, a reality show called Intervention. Many of us, if not most of us, have a family or a friend who at some point has suffered from addiction and benefited from an intervention or not gotten an intervention and needed one. I myself have had two childhood friends that have died from complications relating to drug addiction. I have another friend that's still struggling with addiction. So, yeah, I mean, so you have to ask the question, why do people that say they're so compassionate allow people suffering from drug addiction or severe mental illness to live on the streets? And the basic idea is, for progressives, is that the system is bad, the system being our democratic capitalist system is bad. It creates victims. And so progressives only pay attention to people who are obviously victims of that system. San Francisco, I also describe our, the, the, the seemingly contradictory nature of, our, of the progressive response to crime, in particular to homicide. And what you notice is that when, the first thing you, when you look at the data, 30 times more African Americans are killed by other civilians than by the police, and yet there's all of this attention to police killings. Why is that? Well, it's because progressives are really obsessed with people that are killed by representatives of the system, in that case by police. So in the case of people that are addicted to hard drugs or suffering from mental illness, they're not perceived as um, victims of the system per se. 
And so there's not as much concern over taking care of them. And in fact, the people that are often perpetuating violence and the addiction are drug dealers in San Francisco. The drug trade is controlled by Hondurans. They themselves are viewed as victims of human trafficking. It's not true. But that victim ideology, the idea that people can be put in the category of victims and that everything should be given to them and nothing asked, is really the dominant ideology of progressives right now. And it's really the dominant ideology of all of our political leaders in the San Francisco Bay Area. This is fascinating. I want to build on this a bit more because you're, you, this actually offers a kind of broader framework to try to understand what's happening in our society right now. Right. Right. We're looking at you know critical race theory in schools. We're looking like I think there's elements of what you're talking about in, in all of these kinds of efforts. Um, what's really fascinating to me is something you made a note of this. You know, there, you were talking about you know Viktor Frankl's approach to psychology and so forth. There's this, this idea, life has to be infused with meaning to, 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 to take from the title of his book, but also that you know accepting responsibility is a critical element of that. And he, like this, it's the same people who might believe in this kind of victimology ideal of ideology that you're describing, who also agree that that taking responsibility for yourself is something that's important and agree with you know let's, let's say Viktor Frankl's you know approach to to helping people and that's right. it just seems like such a paradox right and I guess you're offering a little bit of an explanation as to how that works yeah I mean a lot of people some most people are familiar with Viktor Frankl some people aren't Viktor Frankl was a uh, psychologist psychiatrist um, in the 1930s and 40s uh, he was in Austria as Jewish he became famous for uh, successful treatment of people with depression and, and suicidal college students. And what he would do is he would ask the depressed college students who were contemplating suicide, he would ask them, why don't you commit suicide? And it was such a, such a wild question because, of course, it sounds like he's, he's suggesting it. He's not. He's just asking people, why haven't you committed suicide? And the answers that people gave are ones you might imagine. I, because I would hate to hurt my family who I love, or I have a girlfriend or a boyfriend who I hope to marry. Oh, I'm excited to get my degree in college and have a job and a life. And so they would describe goals, things that they live for. And Frankel argued against Freud at the time that that's how people live life passionately. That's how people live a good life is they have goals. Those goals might change. Some things might not be realized. His philosophy got put to the test when he was taken to the concentration camps. He realized very early on if he was going to survive the concentration camps, he had to have a goal. He had to have the right mentality. And of course, it was to survive the concentration camps, be reunited with his wife and parents, and to write a book. Well, he gets out of the concentration camps. His wife has been killed. His parents have been killed. He has a new goal, which is to find a new life partner and remarry and to write his book. I was watching old Viktor Frankl videos, actually, right when uh, COVID started in 2020. And I found myself, within five minutes of watching them, feeling happy, feeling empowered, feeling excited. And I was so struck that um, Viktor Frankl was very popular among liberals and progressives in the 1960s. And yet, at the same period, that same philosophy, when it became part of political life, when you would say, we need to have a better attitude, people need to have a good mentality, they need to be self-reliant, they need to be resilient. That was treated by the radical left as blaming the victim. That's the name of a very famous book that came out in 1970. 
And I think it's a real disservice, it's a real manipulation of language, because what it does is, first of all, it suggests that some people are essentially victim by nature of their identity, their racial identity, or by nature of their experience. And so if you're African-American, this is very insulting and racist, the idea is that you're a victim because of your race. Or if you suffered abuse or trauma or some suffering, that you are a victim because of that trauma. And then the idea, that's the first bad idea, then the second bad idea is that nothing should be expected of people that are victims. But that's absurd because, of course, the way that you achieve a heroic life, the way that you become a hero, is to overcome your victimization and your oppression. So part of the reason I wanted to write San Francisco is to get to that moment. Where did progressives go so wrong? On the one hand, they embraced this really empowering message of self-help in their private lives, but then in their politics, they totally rejected it with this idea that self-help was blaming the victim. Well, and so, so that moment is that in 1970, blaming the victim coming out? What, like, trace this for me. This yeah. is so fascinating. Yeah, it really starts, um, you know, I mean, I think you could, some of these ideas, you know, you trace them back and they go, they always end up starting much earlier than you discover. But certainly 1964, we passed this really sweeping and amazing Progressive Civil Rights Act, which prohibits racial discrimination. Right away, President Johnson, his advisor is Patrick Moynihan, who was a Democrat and became a senator of New York later. Moynihan said, you know, we've got a problem, which is that we're seeing high levels of divorce and family dissolution in the African-American community. It was a very sensitive subject back then, as it is now. Um, and, and Moynihan had put out a big report on the black family and some of the challenges there. And it was just a fraction of what it is today. Just yeah, it was about a third of African-American families were, uh, uh, had parental absence, had father absence. Today, I believe it's over 70%. So they were identifying a real problem. The response from the radical left was that's blaming the victim. And I think one way to look at it is that the left felt like that message of personal responsibility was competing with their story, which is that the society and the system are to blame for all bad things that happen to people. And that's a very old view. This is Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the 18th century, who said you know, that people are innocent, were born pure and innocent, and then were corrupted by society. Conservatives have really the opposite view, which is that individuals are born um, fallen, to, you know, to borrow from the Christian or Judeo-Christian language, and then society uh, gets them on the straight and narrow. So it comes from that, and then it just becomes more radical over the last 50 years. So I even see in older generations, older generations of Democrats, they still had some belief that even people that suffered from victimization or oppression or racial discrimination, that things should still be required of them, that that wasn't the end of the story. But it's just became really dogmatic. I think obviously last year, maybe not obviously last year, I believe we were in a very severe moral panic after the George Floyd death and protests. And that led to a situation where um, anybody who suggested some sort of reciprocity or personal responsibility was viewed as continuing with oppression, and they were basically just shouted down. That's how we, that's how we resulted in so many of the terrible policies we saw, including cutting police, not requiring uh, people to follow the basic laws of, of city life. How does, that, how does it work in, say, Skid Row in LA or the Tenderloin in San Francisco? I mean, I remember driving, when I was living in San Francisco, driving through the Tenderloin, this was 10 years ago, 
and already, I mean, it was dangerous to drive through. You could hurt somebody. There were people wandering through the streets, obviously in very rough shape. And this was 10 years ago, and I know it's only gotten, gotten a lot worse. But this has a direct result of how people who are trying to help these people are dealing with them and police at the same time. I guess you, you suggest the ideal situation is for the advocates and the police to be working together, but this isn't how it plays out now. Yeah, you've got it just right. I mean, what we call homeless encampments is a euphemism. It's a propaganda word designed to make you think that it's something different than it is. The idea is that, oh, it's these people helping each other. They're camping out. The European researchers, and there was a major study done of this that was commissioned by the Norwegian government, they describe these as open drug scenes where people live inside of open air drug markets. So buyers and sellers are meeting there, but they're also just living there because they're so addicted. I mean, when you're addicted to, to opioids, you know, whether pills or heroin or fentanyl, and you're in the, in the depths of that addiction, you often need to be using your opioids every four hours, except for at night when you might sleep a long time, sleep off that, but you wake up right away and you need to use. That's what those encampments are. They're open drug scenes. In Europe, they tried at first, just like we're doing in California, just helping people, giving people methadone, which is the substitute to heroin giving people clean needles, encouraging them to go into drug treatment. It didn't work. Um, people were like, no, I'll just stay here in the squalor and use drugs because they're suffering from a kind of mental illness, which is what drug addiction is. Eventually, finally, the people of those cities, and it's Amsterdam, Lisbon, Frankfurt, Vienna, Zurich, they all took action with police and social workers to require people. You can't camp in public. You can't uh, use drugs in public. Like You can't defecate in public. You can come to shelter. We can get you drug treatment. Or you can go to jail. But those are your two choices. That was where I thought we left things in the early 2000s. But basically, we've done a series of laws, court judgments, and just changes in public attitudes so much that now it's just hey, if you're doing those things, we'll leave you alone because we think you're victims. And what about police? And how, did, how are police, uh, how, how do police interact with these areas or how are they allowed to interact with these areas? I mean, naturally, police are completely, have been demonized over the last, particularly the last several years, but really it's older than that. It goes back 50, 60 years when police were viewed as, you know, part of the system. They're part of this oppressive uh, prison state. You know, prisons became viewed as a metaphor for the capitalist system by a lot of radical left, socialist, progressive anarchists. I describe there's really a long history of sort of um, valorizing and celebrating uh, convicts, criminals. This is very old. The idea is that capitalism itself is a crime, that property is theft, that nobody is wealthy that didn't steal their wealth, that it's all a corrupt con game, and that anybody that breaks the law is in some sense a, a, a rebel, a resistance fighter. And that goes for people that commit very violent crimes even. So the anti-police protests are very old to some extent. They gained new life, obviously, last year. 
You know, what I point out in the book, and one of the most surprising things, um, even for me, even in someone that's become very skeptical of the claims made by the left, is just how effective policing really is. You need good policing for sure, but just having more police on the streets reduces crime. And there's just so many studies that have found this. But one way we know you can reduce homicides is by having police interact with potential killers. You know, just that it's that classic Hollywood movie, you know, where the police officer knows the potential criminal and they have this, you know, relationship. We know that one of the factors driving a rise in homicides, the willingness of people to kill, is just total cynicism in the system, total disbelief that the system is fair, that the system is impartial, that it's not discriminatory. So when you have months and months of activists, the news media, and credible individuals saying that the police are basically racists, that the police are killers and violent, it reduces the legitimacy of the police, the police are less likely to engage in the community and, and, and would-be criminals are more likely to commit crimes, including homicide. Well, and just to talk about the incarceration, the, the flip side is like this is the most incarcerated, I and mean, this is as a Canadian kind of looking in, it's unbelievable how many people are incarcerated. And you describe in the book, and this has been documented on, on this show a number of times before, that people with mental illness end up in prison or they're in these open air drug markets, but they're not in the sort of scenario that would actually help them because neither of those scenarios necessarily help them. That's right. And it's an issue I'm sensitive to. My aunt suffered from schizophrenia. She was pretty well taken care of. She lived in uh, residential care in Denver, Colorado. She had her own bedroom, a shared living space, shared kitchen space. She was too disabled to work, so she was cared for by taxpayers, but in a really, po I think, as positive a way as possible. Everybody, a lot of people remember how terrible our psychiatric hospitals became around mid-20th century, and that's true. But it's important to remember that the treatment of the mentally ill has always been extremely difficult and often really terrible. So in the 19th century, the 18th century, you know, we were, people would, you know, people with mental illness were locked up in basements and barns, literally in chains. Many people were killed. And so the initial impetus to get people into psychiatric hospitals was very humanistic. We then had a Great Depression. We had World War II. Those, they were short-staffed in those hospitals. And the activists that were trying to reform the hospitals took the story to Life Magazine and Look and these other big magazines and newspapers. We saw photos of how terrible the hospitals were. At the same time, progressives were pushing for a very humanistic response, at least they thought, to treat the mentally ill in communities. But what ended up happening, and this occurred, really it starts under uh, President John F. Kennedy and then accelerates after that, is we just started literally dumping people from the psychiatric hospitals onto the street. So some people did get the care that they needed, like my aunt. Other people ended up homeless and often addicted to hard drugs. And then many other people ended up in jail and prison. I point out that the institution that has the most seriously mentally ill people in the country is Los Angeles County Jail, kept in absolutely terrible conditions. And, you know, I at least for this population, and it's much easier to deal with somebody with you know, depression or mild depression who becomes addicted to heroin, that's someone who we have better experience dealing with. But people with schizophrenia, that's all, or, or severe bipolar disorder, sometimes they, it's hard to tell them apart. 
that's a community that, that's a group of people that are extremely difficult to deal with and it requires some amount of sophistication but it does but it certainly requires engagement and some amount of coercion otherwise people end up getting hurt you know we don't allow people with dementia our grandparents suffering from Alzheimer's or, or dementia, we don't allow them to wander the streets and live on the streets. And so one of the questions I, I wanted to ask was why then do we allow people that are suffering from psychosis, whether from schizophrenia or from chronic meth use, uh, to be on the streets? You get the impression that it's a combination of good intentions and very specific ideology, like Foucault's idea ideology, I guess, or something that came from him. Yeah, so uh, Michel Foucault is this incredibly influential intellectual. It's interesting, a lot of people that, that, that did not get graduate degrees in the social sciences or the humanities are not familiar with Michel Foucault, but his ideas, he's a French historian, uh, wrote widely in the 60s and early 70s, was hugely influential. Many of the ideas today that we take for common come from him. You know, one of his first big books was on the treatment of mental illness, and in it, first of all, it turned out it was an inaccurate history, but basically he celebrated this idea. He promoted this idea, which was very popular in the 60s and also very wrong, which was that there is no such thing as mental illness. They promoted the idea that basically these are people that were just, we say today, neuroatypical. They're sort of quirky or slightly different, and that the mistreatment of those folks is just a kind of prejudice or according to Foucault, it was actually a way to enforce uh, standards of the enlightenment and of reason on people. And so there was, a, there was a sort of romantic view that if these folks were just allowed to be free in society, everything would be fine. It didn't turn out that way. Uh, seriously mentally ill people that are not properly taken care of uh, can get into a lot of trouble, including committing acts of violence. They can be in psychotic states for a long time and end up um, hurting other people or hurting themselves. Then Foucault had a similar take on prisons, which is that he was actually against rehabilitation. Um, he viewed it as too insidious as a power trip, and so also was a big um, a critic of basically any kind of incarceration or any kind of, uh, really the whole criminal justice system was suspicious from his point of view because we needed something that looked a lot more like what we would call anarchism or much more decentralized government or no government at all. So how does this manifest in kind of the opposite, which is mass incarceration and what I guess the, the other side being lack of treatment, right, for people? I mean, one way to look at these, these two waves where we had a huge increase in, in homicide and other crimes starting in the late 60s, 1970s, all the way through the early 1980s, then we then had a big backlash a lot of mass incarceration uh, in response to that in the 1980s and 1990s. Then we started to come back from that. A lot of us were like, we really went too far in the other direction. And, you know, I think we're at a very interesting moment right now because on, you know, my book, certainly some people will, on the left will try to dismiss it as conservative. Um, but I do think when people read it, they'll see that really I'm arguing for a system much more like what they do in Amsterdam or what they do in Europe, which is universal psychiatric care, shelter first, treatment first, and then housing earned. The, the left has promoted this idea that people on the street should just be given housing, no questions asked, that housing is a right, that everybody has a right to their own apartment, 
no matter the circumstances. We know that's actually really dangerous. Um, it's irresponsible to give people suffering from addiction or serious mental illness cash or their own apartment without any restrictions on how they spend it. And so it often feels cruel to people you know, to not give money to the homeless, but we know that when you're supporting people in their addictions, it can actually result in very destructive behaviors. But that is the basic idea, is this really bad idea that um, the people on the street suffering from addiction and mental illness are victims, and nothing should be required of them, and that requiring anything of them is a kind of oppression. It's not something that mainstream psychiatrists believe. It's not something that addiction specialists believe or agree with. In San Francisco, one of the main characters is a leading addiction specialist at Stanford University. He's somebody who supports harm reduction measures, including giving addicts clean needles so they don't get HIV AIDS. But he says very clearly, look, you know, you need interventions. I mean, this is obvious. So in some ways, I think that America, you know, where it all ends up going is I think America needs to mature in its own relationship to freedom and that there's a that these things are justified out of a kind of freedom for victims but also i think for non-lefties you kind of go well you know you can't tell people what to do and my view is yeah that's fine you can't tell people what to do and i don't think we should put any resources into say making addicts who are killing themselves in the privacy of their own homes some sort of a law enforcement priority but we have a situation here where we're literally paying people in the form of cash welfare housing and other services to live in tents on the street use hard drugs defecate publicly and uh, commit crimes so clearly something's not working we need to have some accountability and that includes from the people that we label victims well so let's talk about europe a little bit because people will often say to this okay well but look you know in portugal for example it's uh, all drugs are legal or at least decriminal if people know better at least they're decriminalized right but but that isn't the whole story but that's what you keep hearing right to justify why so many things aren't working. That's what I've heard many times. Yeah, and when you ask uh, progressives what the solution is to all the drug overdoses in San Francisco, we have one of the highest rates of drug overdose in the country. You know, 712 drug overdose deaths or poisonings last year. They say we just need a safe place to, for people to use drugs. And they, they claim that that's what Europe did. They claim that Europe simply decriminalized. That's just false. And in Amsterdam, I saw it work. I saw it myself at work, but I also saw, I also interviewed the head of Portugal's drug programs. I mean, one of the main talking points is that Portugal just decriminalized all drugs and it's fine. I asked the head of Portugal's drug program, if I were shooting heroin in Lisbon in public, what would happen to me? And he said, you would be arrested and brought to the police station. And, um, you know, they do, uh, they have decriminalized a certain amount of drugs for personal use, but if you're caught breaking other laws as a result of your addiction, including using drugs publicly, shooting heroin on a park bench, you, do, you are brought before something called a commission for the dissuasion of addiction, which is just as scary as it sounds. It's, uh, you know, usually it's, an, it's like a defense attorney, a prosecuting attorney, a social worker, a psychiatrist, and your family members. So basically, it's an intervention with the power of the state behind it, so that if you're a repeat offender, you're arrested again, something else happens, they will come after you and, uh, and increase the, the punishment and the consequences of your behavior. But, but the idea is that you, because of this accountability, you can have a chance. 
right? That's right. I mean, interventions are liberating for the person that's being intervened upon. The, the, the addicts are in the grip of a mental illness. I, that's the first thing you have to understand. And in the book, I describe three recovering addicts, two of whom were homeless at one point, and they just say, you know, straight, like, I had to be arrested to quit drugs, and I'm glad I was arrested. I interviewed many people who, including people that were actively addicted and actively homeless, who would say, I wish I would, I wish somebody would do something. I wish I would, they wouldn't necessarily say I wish I were being arrested, but they would ask to be on probation. Some, they need some sort of structure to keep themselves healthy and clean. You know, it used to be that even, you know, addicts would be arrested every once in a while and would find themselves in jail where they would, or prison where they would have to detox and, and kick their addiction, at least for a period of time. We're not doing that now. And so the result is these are often these, there's a lot of what we call poly drug use. There's a lot of people using multiple hard drugs in a single day, day after day, meth at night often, and then heroin or fentanyl during the day. It is very hard on the body to live like that. We see people in San Francisco with open wounds, open sores. People are becoming deeply sick. Obviously, they're dying of drug overdoses. So the idea that the idea, the, the popular idea that we should just simply help people to remain heavily addicted, but in a slightly safer way, I, I find it just offensive and quite cynical. Um, many people need the intervention. The intervention, and the Portuguese know that. Yes, they don't. You don't necessarily need to arrest addicts and put them in prison, but they do need the intervention so that they can uh, they can get clean and move on with their lives. You know, I'm I'm remembering this amazing. Was it a Dutch saying? The 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 weak doctor makes the wound stink or something. I can't. Uh, That's exactly like right. That. Yeah, it was, it was interesting because I had. I had just gone to the big museum in Amsterdam, and, and Netherlands was really one of the first rich countries. It was famous because it was a, a country that traded around the world, and they had these, in one of the rooms were these pictures of, of these big battles and scenes of war, of the Dutch fighting and being really tough. And then in another room were these scenes, these paintings of the same period of domestic life, of tranquility, of a wealthy family, in particular one of a wealthy family with each of them holding their little musical instruments. And this must have been 17th century. And I was struck that, and I was still struck even when I talked to the Dutch, that there's some sense of like the softness that you have in the, in the internal life and the private life um, was only made possible by having national security. And, and so this is something that you always hear conservatives say, freedom is not free, right? Like you have to have, um, you have to have some strength there. And of course, in the, in the family too, there's discipline uh, provided uh, against bad behavior and to reward good behavior. And that was when I mentioned this experience of visiting the museum to one of my Dutch friends. And that's when he said, you know, soft doctors make wounds stink. And the idea is that you know, if you have a wound and it's not clean and gets infected, then it smells. And so you have to scrub it and make it bleed. This is something that all bicycles, all bicyclists know. If you get road rash, you need to scrub that wound and make sure it bleeds and is clean. 
And I think there's something to that. I think that we are dealing with a really infected, a long-standing infected wound in the form of this open-air drug scenes, in the form of untreated mental illness. And yeah, we need to get clean. And that means that there's going to be some painful, you know, coming to grips with reality. It won't be necessarily completely pretty, but we'll end up on the other end of it with a lot healthier group of people than we have now. Something that I really loved about uh, San Francisco was just like, you know, you went out into the various communities and not just in America to try to understand what was happening on the ground, talking to the people who are actually doing the work of a variety of sorts. What would you say is the is the thing that surprised you most that you learned that is unconventional wisdom, let's say, or maybe it is conventional wisdom for that matter. I mean, the most surprising thing by far is that the reason we don't have enough shelter beds in San Francisco or in other cities in California or on the progressive West Coast is because the homeless advocates themselves had fought to fully fund them. And so when you interview progressives, it's shocking um, they say, well, we didn't want the money to go to shelters because we wanted all the money to go into something they call permanent supportive housing. They really believe, out of a radical left view, that housing is a right. That if you just show up and say, I'm homeless, that you have a right to an apartment in San Francisco or in Venice Beach, which is one of the most exclusive residential communities in Los Angeles. That is really what people believe and that is what they say and that's why they have denied sufficient funding to build shelters. There's other factors involved like it's hard to build anything in San Francisco because of the nimbyism, um, but that's also solvable. The shelters can be built elsewhere. But basically that was what was so striking about it and that was where I saw the comparison with Apocalypse Never where I point out that the people that are most alarmist about climate change are the same people that are against using nuclear energy or natural gas, which are the two technologies that have done the most to reduce carbon emissions. And that was where you kind of go, there's something else going on here. There's some ulterior agenda. If we know that, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, and I point to, you know, we offer more generous cash welfare, more generous housing, more generous services in San Francisco. There's sort of a magnet effect. But at the end of the day, you have people living on the street because you're allowing people to live on the street. If you were to say to the people on the street, you can't sleep here in the park, you have to go sleep in the shelter, and if you're not going to go to the shelter and you're going to insist on being here, then we're going to arrest you, you will suddenly discover that you don't have tents all over your city anymore. That's all that that is. And so that was, I think, the most surprising thing. At the end of the day, it was like, okay, so if you just don't let people camp out and you require them to sleep in shelters, that solves the problem. You then have to have, make sure you have enough shelter space. And so I was struck by the ways in which, you know, it's not just the radical left. Our current governor, Gavin Newsom, he himself advocated defunding shelters as a way to divert all of that funding into housing. So you sort of start to see a pattern here, which is like, these really are threats to basic civilizational institutions. I mean, first they defunded the psychiatric hospitals and let everybody out. Then they defunded the shelters and said people can sleep anywhere. And now they're defunding the police and, and trying to close all the jails and prisons. Look, a lot of those folks probably should have gotten rehabilitation, but that's not what's happening. People are just being let out without any conditions. Okay, so what's the end game of this? I mean, it, what, 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 how, what's your take on that, right? Well, I end the book by a reflection on, I think that Americans do need to grow up. I mean, one question is, 
you know, I mean, I think the, the and it's a real question for me is, is this the end of Western civilization? I mean, it's where we see the attacks on the pillars of civilization occurring. Radical left has been, you know, attacked psychiatric hospitals. It's been attacking the police. It's been attacking universities as a place of free inquiry. It's seeking the censorship, um, uh, and it often it's the journalists demanding the censorship of alternative media outlets, whether it's Epic Times or Joe Rogan or me, demanding censorship. Um, so there, there's an attack underway on the main pillars of Western civilization, and that's really scary. So one question is, is that where this is all headed? Or are we headed towards a situation where you know conservatives and liberals just all live in different states? And we're not really a single country anymore. I find that terrifying and disturbing. I have a lot of faith in this country because we do have a, an ability to remake ourselves. You know, we all thought that America was kind of dying in the 1970s. You know, it came back in the 1980s. You know, I think um, we all felt like America was in real trouble when, when the Iraq war was going badly and, and George W. Bush was president. and then. And we had a great recession, and we came back. So I do think that America has the potential to come back. We're still unique and special among nations. You know, China is slipping further and further into, into totalitarianism. That makes the United States more attractive for immigrants and for others. But I do think we have to rescue a sense of national identity. I think this, this hypersensitivity to racial identity, sexual identity, gender identity, and other identities is a response to the fact that there isn't a strong national identity. I also think it's a response to the fact that traditional religions have been in decline for a long time. I think it's also a function of the fact that social media has accelerated and intensified many of these trends. It's made people more neurotic, more needy psychologically, and, and thus reverting towards you know, pretty um, terrible uh, personal and political behaviors. So I, I do quote Senator Patrick Moynihan, the same guy that raised concerns around the dissolution of the family in the 1960s, and he said, you know, the central conservative insight is that culture determines the fate of a nation, but the central liberal insight is that politics can interfere, intervene in that culture. So intervention becomes quite a theme of, of this work. And I think of my work, I've been trying to make in Apocalypse Never and in San Francisco interventions, first and foremost in the culture, talking to Epic Times, talking to Joe Rogan, just doing these podcasts. It's been a real pleasure to be able to just talk about these ideas and surface them. Because I do think that when reasonable liberals look at victim ideology and they realize that it's just as dumb as it sounds, the idea that whole groups of people are victims and that's the end of the story and that that's really terrible psychologically, it's very disempowering. I do think that has a big impact. And then I think we need a different uh, political formation. And I say formation because I don't know if we need a third party or if we need one of the parties to just change its agenda. But what I end up advocating is something that is not obviously liberal or conservative. I do think we need a shelter-first policy means you can't camp out anywhere you want. That's not okay. It means you have to build enough shelters. I do advocate for universal psychiatric care. Our current system of psychiatric care is a mess. There's both gaps in the system. So if you get out of drug treatment, we don't have an obvious place for you to go. A lot of those folks get out of treatment, go right back to the street, and some of them overdose and die. 
because their tolerances have dropped. Other people get out of prison and they have the same problem. So we don't have a really functioning psychiatric care system. And at the same time, we have a lot of duplication. People paid to do the same thing for different groups of people, a lot of overlap. That system has to get fixed. I'm proposing a new agency to handle it at the state level with a hierarchy that reports directly to the governor, a CEO of something that we're calling CalPsych. It would oversee six regional directors who would oversee um, powerful caseworkers who have the power to get you the particular care that you need. So if you overdose, from drugs or you're arrested multiple time, CalPsych will get you the residential care, the psychiatric care, the, the rehab that you need. When I look at that package and I talk to, first of all, we, we tested it with voters and it polls at 70 to 80% support. I went and interviewed the top psychiatric advisor to the governor who's a very famous, he was the head of the National Institute of Mental Health, but then I also talked to people on the center right with Manhattan Institute and other organizations. I found broad agreement on this vision. Even some folks on the radical left, I even found some agreement on the radical left with the need for involuntary psychiatric care for people that are psychotic. I found support on the radical left for more shelters mostly from people that were not just ideologues, but also worked with the people that we call homeless. So I do have some confidence that both the culture is changing. I think we're in a big backlash right now against wokeism, against cancel culture. And I do think that the culture is ready for some sort of new political leadership with a new policy agenda that can really address these problems. You know, it, it's fascinating to hear that as, you know, this sort of this opportunity for some sort of bipartisanship or multi-partisanship, if such a thing exists. I don't know. I've never heard that word in, in this country. Um, and, and that there's there probably is these areas, like this is an area where there's kind of broad interest across the political spectrum, however you conceive that in, in, in some sort of a solution. You know, you just reminded me of something that you mentioned in the book, which is, um, you know, there is this radical leftist ideology in play, but there's also this kind of, you know, civil libertarianism, which is just like, you know, you, you can't impose anything on anyone, freedom. And so it, it's interesting because that in itself, it, it's kind of like the combination of these things yes. that actually creates the big issue and that's how right. to deal with that. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, when you interview conservatives who identify as either libertarian or as classical liberals, one of the things that's so striking is that many of them are also people that have a strong faith and that faith tradition often has some sort of value around discipline or hard work or some or propriety something that is more of the old testament values for lack of a better word that balances out that libertarian attitudes and so what we have in progressive cities is what one of the characters in my book calls left libertarianism. You could also call it anarchism. But I think that victim ideology is really the key because I think that, you know, even you know, for classical liberals or libertarians, your rights end when they start to infringe on other people's rights. So people have a right to their city. People have a right to walk down the sidewalk and not have to move into the street because there's a tent there. They have a right not to see somebody injecting heroin in front of them. They have a right to not having people defecate publicly. These are all rights that we have as, as residents of the city. And so the real attack comes from, I think, this kind of extreme victimology, which suggests that it would be wrong to enforce the laws 
against certain groups of people. And so, yes, to some extent, I think it's a radicalization of libertarianism, but it really, I think, the best way I have found of characterizing it is as something more like a radical victim ideology. You call it a religion of sorts, like it's something you know deeper than ideology or you know a replacement. Where you mentioned you know the decline of traditional religions. It's so. You got it. Yeah, I described this uh, wonderful psychologist Jonathan Haidt out of New York University, and Jonathan Haidt argues that most faith traditions, most religions have six core values. And he had argued that what progressives have been doing is emphasizing one of them, which is the value of caring, of compassion. And I spent a bunch of time on this. I think he was onto something, but where I, where I try to advance his theory um, in this particular case is I see, what I see progressives doing is actually redefining each of those six values around victims. So to give you a sense of it, one of those core values, those universal values, according to Jonathan Haidt, is sanctity. And there's some idea that certain things are sacred in society. Well, adherents of victim ideology or victim victimology as a religion also view, they have a view of sanctity, but their view of sanctity is different, it's defined differently. So, so victims themselves are sacred. You know, um, the traditional view is of the body as sacred. A lot of religions have the view of the body as sacred, and we have different rituals and, and rules around the kinds of foods that we can eat. Well, that exists as well, um, but it's, it's, it's different. So, for example, uh, it's okay, according to victim ideology, the sanctity of the body is not violated by heroin, where it was... A, or by drugs, as it would be for traditional religions, it is violated by the system or the government. And so, so if a traditional conservative would say you're defiling the body, you're destroying your body's sanctity uh, through the use of these hard drugs, a progressive would say, nope, that's autonomy. And what only would violate that sanctity of the body would be the government intervening and arresting somebody for doing that. So that is a kind of libertarianism. But again, it's, it's particular to people classified as victims. It does not apply, for example, to some a, a so-called privileged person and their right to not wear a mask, for example. So you know that explains why it is that progressives can be so authoritarian and, and anti-freedom when it comes to things like mask mandates, and yet so demanding of, of freedom and liberty when it comes to the right of a person to use whatever drugs they want. You know, to talk about Jonathan Haidt's work a little more, you know, one one element that you didn't mention as we were talking, but you do mention in the book, is this sort of the the, the coddling element, the coddling in education and upbringing, and how that's shaped things. So, like, you know, I think if you interject that now, we kind of get this the, the whole picture, right? Yeah, I mean, there is a way in which all of what we're describing is just a, con a continuity of increasing laxity and coddling of kids that really starts as we go from working on the farm to being in the city. It was a pretty gradual process in a lot of ways. A lot of people look at the period after World War II where baby boomers were particularly coddled by their parents, but you start to see anxiety about spoiling kids and coddling kids in the 1930s and even earlier you know, spare the rod, spoil the child is a, an expression that comes from a long time ago out of an anxiety around people spoiling their kids too much. It's just gotten more and more intense over the years. And the idea, I mean, I even had a very progressive uh, 
person that I know who's a teacher was complaining to me that he was being punished by his principal for having disciplined a child for having engaged in deeply inappropriate behavior in the classroom. And the idea was that that child was, if not a victim, then sort of uniquely fragile and should not be uh, disciplined. And so the rise of coddling culture I also see behind the opioid epidemic this idea that any amount of pain should be responded to with very heavy drugs. One of the things I learned in the Netherlands is that they just didn't have an opioid epidemic in most of these European countries. Why? Well, because if you had some pain, their first response was not to just give you an opioid prescription. They were much more conservative in prescribing opioid pills. Of course, you know, we overprescribed opioids from the 1990s to around 2010. We then crack down on overprescribing opioids. A lot of those folks then turn to heroin. A lot of those folks are now using fentanyl and dying. The bottom line is we also needed psychiatric care. So you do need, particularly if people are being overly coddled, you do need some regulation of these really powerful drugs to say, do you really need an opioid or maybe you're just unhappy or maybe you need an antidepressant or maybe you need some therapy or you need some counseling or you just need to exercise uh, you know, a few times a week to improve your brain chemistry or whatever it is. So there is a part of it that is uniquely American in that we have such a manic, intense character. We also lack the kind of psychiatric and mental health care system that European countries have. And then, of course, I think we're also suffering from, you know, just decades of coddling and not balancing that need to both un unconditionally love our children, which I believe we should do, but also have real consequences for bad behavior and then proper rewards for genuinely extraordinary, remarkable, and beneficial behaviors. Well, and just, just this idea, you know, as you're talking, I can't help think about it, and I think about this a lot, it's just the, the idea that pain, any pain at all, is bad. Right, right, and we know that's not true, even though we wouldn't wish pain on anybody, right? You can see the society right now, the, big, the, the coolest self-help movement, the hottest self-help movement right now is stoicism. And stoicism is just a philosophy that says just that. It says, look at your suffering as an opportunity to become stronger. Look at the pain as a chance to become a stronger person. Um, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche is famous for saying, that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. That's a stoic mentality. And it's basically been demonized. Uh, by many progressives as a way to justify cruelty. But of course it's not. It's just acknowledging life is really hard. I mean, all of our lives, it doesn't matter how good your life is. It's, everybody's life is full of moments of pain and suffering. Even people with very privileged lives experience pain and suffering. I think we need to tell our kids that. We need to expect that they're going to have pain and suffering and that they will develop character by overcoming the pain and suffering with some amount of dignity and with taking responsibility for, the, for what they do with that pain and suffering, since the pain and suffering, to a large extent, is inevitable. Well, you know, I think that's a perfect place to finish up. And, you know, uh, Michael Schellenberger, such a pleasure to have you on again, and we'll have you back for sure. Thanks so much for having me on.